Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. But I'm presenting my thesis tomorrow, and I've barely had time to prepare. Nonsense! You've been my grad student for 12 years. You were ready six years ago. What? I probably should have told you. The great Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. And I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. And on today's episode, we are going to do something that we threw out there and a lot of listeners, they wanted us to do this episode, even though we were worried it's a little bit of inside baseball, an episode about the profession of academia, going into philosophy, going into psychology. We're going to answer questions like, should I go to grad school? If I do go to grad school, how can I get a job? What are the chances of me getting a job? And once I get a job, uh, will it be one of these adjunct jobs where you're treated like a factory worker in China, like a nine-year-old factory worker in China, no pay, long hours? You know, at least those people have the pride of having made an iPhone at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, except that they've made like one tiny little clip of an iPhone that they w- they'll live their whole lives without ever seeing an actual that's, iPhone. That's still better than ch- publishing a chapter in a collected edition. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's a separate issue, <laughs> but that's probably that's probably. <laughs> Right, so, I mean, if you're not, I, th- I have a feeling most of our listeners have have some involvement with academia. But if if you don't, <laughs> chances are that you know somebody, so you can. Make- and probably most of our <laughs> listeners has published a chapter. <laughs> I mean, I have. <laughs> I've published way too many. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> now we learned today. He doesn't say Red Sox. He say Boston. We want to thank you, Mayor Molina, Governor Patrick, the whole police department, for the great job that they did this past week. This is our fucking city. And nobody's going to dictate our freedom. Spare some. Thank you. So on a more serious note, since the last episode, they caught both of the Boston Bombers, two brothers. The clip we just played, that was, of course, David Ortiz, Big Poppy, at a very beautiful pregame ceremony 
the day after they caught the second bomber that crazy day and david ortiz gave it was a very moving speech it was it was it, it was awesome of course the big headline though was this is our fucking city which uh, the fcc actually in a very uncharacteristic display of wisdom decided not to censor not to fine anybody but just to issue a statement saying they supported boston they supported the red sox they supported david ortiz and they had no problem with it um so i was actually pretty impressed with that and 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 the whole thing it was such a big story we talked about it we're not going to talk about it again we talked about it last episode It, it was a huge story but another event this almost made you forget about Boston, is what you're saying. Well, not me, but certainly if you judge by Facebook posts, blog posts, uh, this new phenomenon has captured the attention of America or diverted it away from the bombings in Boston. If you just open this like I told you to, tie yourself down to whatever chair you're sitting in. Because this email is going to be a rough fucking ride. For those of you that have your heads under rocks, which... Apparently, as a majority of this chapter, we have been fucking up in terms of nighttime events and general social interactions with Sigma Nu. If you're reading this right now, saying to yourself, OMG, Becca, I've been having so much fun with my sisters this week. Then punch yourself in the face right now so that I don't have to fucking find you on campus and do it myself. This week is about fostering relationships in the Greek community. And that's not fucking possible if you're going to stand around and talk to each other and not our matchup. Newsflash, you stupid fucking cocks! Frats don't like boring sororities. Oh, wait. Double fucking newsflash. Sigma Nu is not going to want to hang out with us if we fucking suck! Rebecca! You say in your whiny little bitch voice to your computer screen, I've been cheering... On our sports teams at all the sports. Doesn't that count for something? No, you stupid fucking asshats! It fucking doesn't! Do you want to know fucking why? Doesn't count because you've been fucking up at sober fucking events too! For example, being stupid shits and saying stuff like, Yeah, what's kickball? Well, it's time someone told you, no one fucking likes that! I will fucking cunt punt the next person I hear doing something like that. And I don't give a fuck if you SOR me. I will fucking assault you. And for those of you who are offended at this email, I apologize. But I really don't give a fuck. Go fuck yourself. So that is, of course, the sorority girl. Has anybody gotten in touch with her? I don't know. It's a good question. I think, it's like, good- her sorority, like, gag, you know, like, they put a gag or like, uh, That, of course, was not her. That was Michael <laughs> Shannon, a great actor. I mean, just one of the best young actors, or, you know, not that young. Of, of <laughs> I was going to say, how old are we if he's young? Yeah. Well, he's probably, he might be younger he's than probably, we are. Yeah. Uh, but he's been in two of my favorite movies the last few years, Take Shelter, which is just, inc- I think, an incredible movie. And Okay, Jesse Prince. Uh, you need that. to stop calling me Jesse Prince every time I praise or describe a movie that you should have seen but haven't because you're a film illiterate. <laughs> Michael Shannon, for the record, is older than me and younger than you. That's bullshit. That, that's, first of all, there's like, what, two years that that would be possible. How old is he? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> that is the two years. <laughs> it's a good thing. Shit. Well, then now I, I hate Michael Shit. Born in 1974. 
I, I didn't get the letter. My brother sent it to me over the weekend. Uh, and I was like, I, I don't get it. I don't get what she's mad about. And, and I didn't even get why everyone was posting it on Facebook and thought it was the funniest thing in the world until I realized that she had introduced me to a word that I did not know before, but I'm very grateful to uh, have learned now, <laughs> which is cunt punt. <laughs> I will cunt punt you, she said. <laughs> she Am said. I going to have to get out the little bleeping sound and have to like edit? <laughs> Are you going to say this for the rest of the episode? I feel like she's made it okay to say cunt punt. (laughs) (laughs) People say it all the time. (laughs) It's the latest thing. It was like what Lenny Bruce sort of wanted, you know, to happen with the N-word, but it never did. I agree that it's a mass. She succeeded. She's a visionary. She's like a civil rights (laughs) visionary. (laughs) And now all the poison has gone from that word. I, <laughs> I I agree that it's a wonderful turn of phrase. It's a, it's a wonderful turn. I, I agree. Uh, I, gonna... I should cunt punt you just for saying that. <laughs> oh, God, I'm so uncomfortable right now. <laughs> All right, let's get to our topic of the day, which is the profession. What's up, fellas? My name is Boomer Trujillo, and I'm an alumnus of the University of Houston's uh, master's program in philosophy. Tamler was actually one of my thesis committee advisors, and I was his TA, so we got to know each other pretty well. But the question still sticks with me. Why would I go into philosophy? Uh, I have friends who have gone on to Harvard Law School, the University of Texas Law School, because philosophy majors are freaks, and they do really well on the LSAT, and they tend to get into really good programs. And if I did that, I could make a ton of money and help a lot of people. I've also been teaching high school science for the past year, working with at-risk youth. And, you know, when you crunch the numbers, I think that someone working at my age, just coming out with a master's, I would make more money, potentially, than the average professor as a high school teacher, and I would certainly enjoy more job security. There are even sociological things like Philosophy has an embarrassing low female-to-male ratio, Um, I think maybe a little over 30%. And then second, uh, I'm from a working-class Latino family from a rural part of Texas. I don't see many people from my particular culture represented in the academy. Uh, In fact, so much so that I feel like an imposter when, you know, I'm in the halls of academia. I just wonder. I wonder which parts of my internal dialogue are justified. I still want to apply to PhD programs. I want to become a professor. It's because I love philosophy, uh, and I really want to study it for the rest of my life. I also really love teaching, and I think university-age students are are some of the best and open, uh, the most receptive to teaching. Yeah, thanks for hearing me out. I look forward to hearing what you what you guys have to say. That was uh, Boomer Trujillo uh, and Trujillo. How did he? I believe it's Trujillo. Trujillo, (laughs) Uh, one of our master's students. He was he was the greatest TA I've ever had and ever will have. Really good student, and you couldn't totally tell from that clip, but a very dirty and dry (laughs) sense of humor. Sorry. What one thing I I like about what uh, what Boomer is saying is that it reminds me of that. I think I, I just tend to forget when I was applying, when I was trying to decide to apply to grad school, the indecision and all of the things that you're weighing because it seems as if this is a, a, a decision that's going, well, I mean, it is a decision that might alter your life completely. 
completely. Yeah. And you know, he has other options, right? You know, right. Unlike <laughs> maybe the difference is, yeah. We, <laughs> I, honestly, the only decision to me was what I was going to apply to grad school in. Uh, Boomer raises uh, a few important points about uh, the lack of diversity in our profession and philosophy. I think this is at least from a female male uh, diversity. This is less true in psychology, but uh, in philosophy, there's a huge disparity between male and female philosophers. There is at least, I think this is changing. I think this is changing for the better. We probably get some angry emails about this, but, uh, you know, I, I think the in terms of the environment for women, I think it's a lot better than it used to be, but still many women feel like there's still that old boys club element yeah. to philosophy. Luckily, psychology is a bit better in this regard, but if you look at the trajectory uh, across sort of the undergraduate major to graduate school to uh, to postdoc, junior prof, and tenured prof, there is this a steady decline of women across. But um, but in terms of grad school, there's not. I, I don't think there's that problem. But you know, Boomer points this out as a possible objection to to going to grad school, and I, I like his sort of liberal sense of justice as as wondering if he wants to participate in that kind of endeavor. But but really, I mean, what what is there to do about that? Especially if you're a man, I, I think the right decision maybe could do what one of those Wachowski brothers did <laughs> up the ratio <laughs> show that you really mean it I, I it's think easy to it, say oh i want more women <laughs> prove it exactly but to the extent that you're the kind of person who cares about that then then good we should have more more people like that in the field i mean i i, I agree now we have yoel and let's play a clip of yoel's yeah let's preface it there was sort of an exchange between you and and paul bloom and Yoel about this very question. Well, this was on Twitter, yeah. And this Twitter exchange started because I believe Paul posted a link to this Slate article called Thesis Hatement by an English PhD. Is she yeah. a PhD? She was arguing that you should just never try to get a PhD in English and, and in the humanities. It's actually pure hell while you're in grad school, and then you won't get a job. Right. The The subheading for on, on Slate Magazine is getting a literature PhD will turn you into an emotional train wreck, not a professor. Right. And, There's, and, there, and she quotes statistics, and, and there, there are a couple other statistics that, that you all talks about in, in the little snippet that we're going to post. But uh, – she says, well, someone also has to not die from small cell lung cancer to give the disease at 6% survival rate. But would you smoke four packs a day with the specific intention of being in that 6%? No, because that's stupid. Well, tenure-track positions in my field have about 150 applicants each. Terrible analogy. <laughs> 150 applicants each. Multiply that 0.6% chance of getting any given job by the 10 or so appropriate positions in the entire world, and you have about that same 6% chance of success. So, so anyway, uh, my, my, uh, my response in the Twitter was – Look, I'm sorry you had a bad time in grad school, but don't generalize from your own experience. Just because you hated it and you had a miserable time and then you didn't get a job, that doesn't mean that's how it will be for for everybody. And I said, look, like I should write a Slate article saying don't ever do yoga just because when I tried to do yoga, it was one of the most just ridiculous, absurd, and kind of humiliating experiences well, of my life. <laughs> uh, but that doesn't mean nobody should do yoga. Right, but those are, so that there are are, as you point out, two two aspects to this to this argument. One is that it's miserable during the time. The other one is that it doesn't pay off. And, and so I imagine that there is no metric for yoga that says, like, of all of the people who ever go to yoga class, only six percent will succeed for whatever success means in yoga. But I suspect that if 
you know, if something really bad happened at the end of every yoga class, such that only 6% were ever able to do it again, um, you might think twice, right? Well, I would think twice. I've, I'm already thinking twice about yoga. <laughs> I, I, I'm, not, and I'm not even thinking twice. I've thought about it. I'm never doing it again. So so why is her analogy to cancer so bad and yours to yoga is so awesome? I mean, well, isn't it the, the end of the idea day, of the like smoking the four packs a day being as rewarding and fulfilling as a job and and a career uh doing what you love in the humanities is that's that's why, right? Of course you wouldn't smoke four packs a day just for the 6% chance that you might live. But you get a lot more out of being a professor than you do out of smoking four packs a day. Like, so, but, you're, but you find those to be acceptable odds to go through five years? Of- I, I, first of all, we'll talk about this. Let's play uh, Yoel's de- uh, defense of this because I have a lot of problems with that. <laughs> so I think in the humanities, there's no good reason to go to grad school unless your, your other options are like, you know, starve on the street. Uh, <laughs> you kind of have a better shot at, uh, in a lot of other professions of, of moving up um, than you do as a humanities PhD student. Assuming that what you want is, is tenure track um, employment. Right. <laughs> All right. So stop right there for a sec. So the the statistic that he's talking about, all of this is assuming that this really is like a lottery where it's just random whether you will get chosen or not. But that's not how life works, right? There's a lot of jobs where it's very hard to succeed, not just getting a humanities PhD, right? How about going out and trying to be a screenwriter? How about being a professional athlete of some kind? There's so many jobs where it's about the success rate is about 5 or 6%, but if you're good at it and if you love it, then it might be worth taking the risk. So you, and if you're really good at it, now I know that you might not be the best judge of whether you're good at it or not, but if you're really good at it, then your chances are much higher than 5% because that takes in all the people who suck at it. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I take it that that's what it means to say that there's a 5% success rate, that, that, that it is. I mean, <clears throat> I disagree with you that it's as meritocratic as you say, though. I think that there's a lot that a lot of luck that does go into it. But. No, I, I'm, I'm a huge beneficiary of luck myself. I don't deny yeah. that at all. But I also think that my odds were not 5%. So, so the odds for any given person who comes up to you and says, should I go to grad school, though, are 5%, right? So, so a randomly If I don't person. know them... Yeah, I mean, a randomly selected yeah, person... but, the, but right? they're that's, not... But, but we're talking about from their perspective making a decision, not... Uh, should I, as Philosopher King, pick this person and say, go to grad school? But I think that there is this unrealistic optimism that everybody will be part of that 5%, that I will be part of that 5%. And what happens is 95% of people well, are, are actually I mean, discussing. Why should there be that? So I mean, go in there, eyes psychology. wide open, knowing that it's going to be tough, knowing that you're going to have to work your ass off and, net, and network and, and be good and actually just have the talent and then have a, a couple of uh, I mean, a, a good things fall your way. It's one of them, but I mean, it's just it just is a true feature of human psychology, at least in the West, that we we think of ours. You know, everybody has that sort of I'm going to be that five percent. If you don't, then why the hell would you go in, right? No, but I mean, if you what's have accounting negative for- Nancy's like Yoel telling people that oh no, you're going to fail, you you have no chance. But ninety five percent of people will fail right now. But ninety five percent of people will fail. Like you're targeting a very elite group. What you I think what you ought to be arguing is how to distinguish between the ninety five and the five and encourage those five. How you know? 
No, like, no, no. We're, we're talking about – remember, we're trying to get in the head of, of a person who's trying to decide whether they want – I don't get to decide whether anybody else goes to grad school or yeah. not. Thank God because right? you'd be sending everybody. You no, could be part of that 5%. You could be part of that 5%. You're totally misunderstanding me. I, I would not and in fact I don't. I, I'm never discouraging, right? I don't think it's my business to tell the, uh, somebody not to pursue what they really want to do but I'm a lot more in encouraging to certain people who I think have a good shot than than other people. But remember, we're trying to get in their head. So the question is not how we judge whether they're uh, whether they're good enough, but how a person could judge whether this is something that they would be interested in doing. Yeah. I think that, you know, normatively the two things that you should be looking at are employment prospects afterwards and your opportunity cost, right? So what could I be doing now? And I, I think that the opportunity cost is that so, that's, that's often neglected and that's natural. People just – they don't think about opportunity cost uh, spontaneously. People often say, oh, well, you know, they'll pay me to do something I like for five years. If you delay yourself by five years, that's a significant hit, right, if you don't end up using that education in a way that, you know, helps your career. Um, so I think reasonably that is something you have to look at. So what am I giving up? What else could I be doing with those five years? And then what are my employment prospects? And I think for psych, um, it still looks pretty good, right? And especially if, if you focus on learning more methods, um, learning statistics, learning to program maybe, I, I think all of that stuff makes you uh, employable and attractive, um, to, to lots of people, you know, beyond universities, and, and really that's what you want. You want to, because, you know, tenure-track jobs are just scarce by nature, um, you want to have a plan B that isn't, I now have this useless degree. So here's another part where I, I, I have strong disagreements with Yoel, and I think he's thinking about this too much like, you know, you're playing poker and you're talking about pot odds and, you know, what the, what the risk-reward ratio is. Because, A, we are not good judges at... Uh, what the odds are going to be, for better or for worse, right? But, but also, who the fuck does Joel think he is telling no, people from I, humanities not to follow their dream because he's in psychology as a tenure-track professor? Here's uh, the key difference between Yoel and someone like you. Uh, Yoel and scientists are actually sensitive to data. And it's okay if you want to say, like, if you want to continue to ignore numbers and say that they don't matter and, like, oh, because it's hard to calculate risk, therefore we shouldn't take it into account. You know, fine. Just just don't criticize the guy for actually caring to do the calculation. If it no, were for no, people no, no. like Look, you, we, we'd never get to the moon if it were for people like you. You'd just be like, hey, yeah. You're talking get, about a 22-year-old, yeah, 23-year-old, 24-year-old trying to calculate their opportunity costs? How the fuck do they know what their opportunity costs are? They don't know what they're going to do in their so life. So therefore, they shouldn't think about it at all? Like the the – I mean, look, if what you're saying is that it's hard to calculate your future, then it's equally difficult to calculate your future when it comes to making the decision to go to grad school. Why would it be more difficult to consider the things that you might do if you're not going to grad school? Well, that's fine. I mean, Boomer talked about that, too. You know, he has, you know, I could be a teacher or I could go to law school. You're just confused at the term opportunity cost, aren't you? I'm not confused, but I know what it means. But I just don't think this is like planning a stock portfolio. And I don't see the point of going into this like 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 an economist. That seems like that seems like a very a very dismissive way of saying that you shouldn't consider risk like why shouldn't you consider you are considering risk 
right? Just because UL is framing it in terms of risk, reward, cost, benefit, and economic terms doesn't mean that you should just ignore it and like no. go after your dream. Well, part of the other part of the other reason is that I'm having that reaction is because I had no opportunity. <laughs> no opportunity <laughs> I cost. Think, I, because I think that you and I are the same. Uh, when my opportunity cost, I would literally be. <laughs> I could have worked my way up in the UPS like a delivery man service. Like I could have, I could have moved to, from like shorts. <laughs> they seem very happy. The guy who just dropped off a package yesterday for whatever reasons, if he drops off the package, I have to sign for it. And then he says, hey, you mess with timeshares? <laughs> you know, I'm just not expecting that. You mess with that time? No, he's like, you mess with that timeshare shit? And I said, I, no. I was like, why? He's like, oh, no reason. Just asking around. I said, I, sorry, I don't know anything about timeshares. Now, do you think he was trying to sell timeshares? I think he was, but that's not a very good job if he just dismisses it. Either that or timeshares is a code word for crack in your area of the country. Uh, I probably could have gotten some good shit, and I just was so stupid. I, I Oh, man. Too bad. Anyway, right. You have to have opportunities to have opportunity costs. Well, Mine was like, could I live off the land? And then I realized that in the suburbs, that's kind of difficult. <laughs> that's why it was so ridiculous that when I got into my PhD program, I took a week for me to decide whether or not I wanted to go. <laughs> as opposed to fucking what? Uh, All right, fine. I guess you should consider your... I just, you know, he's being a little... Here's the two things I object to. I kind of feel like it's uh, not totally his business to be talking about humanities. Oh, God. But I have to have gotten through humanities PhD in order to speak, educate, in order to read the statistics. Yeah. I get get you. But you know what I mean? Like... It's like your N-word, you know? It's like nobody else can... Nobody else can talk about the humanities except for people who had to, like... It's it's not even that. It's it's, it's (laughs) like, you know, I don't think he gets the benefits of going... You know, if you haven't done it, you don't understand the rewards of it, and so you really are going to start thinking of this in clinical terms. Second thing, this relates less to what Yoel was saying, more to the uh, Slate article. Grad school for me was like one of the most fun five years of my life. I loved grad school. I have no idea what she's talking about. Now, look, we'll, we'll talk but, about the job yeah. market later. We'll talk about the job market later because that was hell. But It was great I, for me. <laughs> what? I know. See, you've had this charmed, ridiculous. I'm just life. saying that's I exactly how people feel. I am one of these people who had to struggle a bit. But but look, the first few years of grad school, it's you're taking classes that you're interested in and really psyched about, and you're getting paid for it. You're not getting paid I, very much, I, but I, you're getting paid for it. It's like it's the best fucking deal in the world. You're you're, you're sort of wondering like. I don't want anybody to find out about this because this is this is incredible. I, right. I would be paying to take these classes, and instead, I'm getting paid for it. No, I mean I absolutely agree. But as you as you so so nicely pointed out, we're not we're we're not talking about us. The question is: Is that the experience of most people who go to grad school? And I also think that this this woman who wrote the article is being being. I mean, I knew very many graduate students though who felt exactly like she did. And I immediately, I feel like if you're complaining already in your first or second year about like, oh, they don't pay me enough stipend or oh, oh my course, yeah. then you're in you're just done. the wrong. Yeah, fucking, you're in the wrong like, business. Right, you're in the wrong business. But a lot of people, a lot of people are like that. I mean, mo- and most people that I knew like that in grad school didn't end up in academia. So I, I feel like there's some self-selection. But it's still, it's still a valid point that, like, what if most people will have that experience, even though we didn't? 
Well, then they, I mean, you have to, you know, that's, you have to do a little introspection. If you're not excited to go. Now, let me give you my story, because my story is a little weird, right? I was not a philosophy major. I was an English major. I took eight years off between, that's, that, that, that's the only so thing old. that like, explains the slight difference in our ages. <laughs> like, Very like, slight You're like 10 years older than me. <laughs> I'm two years older than you, maybe three, and and I had just been living, uh, I had just been traveling, and I and I came back, and, and I was living in North Carolina with my uh, with my fiance, soon to become my wife, and I was, and I didn't have anything to do, so I actually am. <laughs> you all scared. I, I was trying to be a writer of a novelist, and I had failed at that. I had written a novel. I just, I, I, I even knew at the time it wasn't good enough, and that wasn't my talent. My talent, if I had one in writing, was in dialogue, uh, playwriting. But I, that wasn't the interest that I wanted to pursue. And so I now was stuck. What the hell am I going to do? And I just almost on here's luck. You want to talk about luck? I applied to Duke and I applied to UNC, and UNC probably looked at my application and they all had a good laugh over beers about it. Uh, it was a little <laughs> higher ranked than Duke, and Duke, uh, for whatever reason, put me on their wait list. I had no recommendations from professors, philosophy professors. It, it was a, it was a somewhat ridiculous application. I have really good GREs. I went to a good undergrad. I, I did well there. Um, so that I, I had that going for me, but, but, uh, I was way, way down on the waiting list, way, way down on the waiting list. And that was it. I just applied to those two schools and I got into Duke on the last day, like enough people turned Duke down that day. If that hadn't happened, <laughs> I have no idea where my life would have gone, but it did. And, and the moment I got to grad school, I was psyched from the beginning. I thought this is the best thing that ever happened to me. This is this is awesome. And not only that, I knew nothing about the profession. I knew nothing about how hard it was to get a job. I knew nothing. I didn't. I'd never heard I, of our APA, uh, yeah. our job, you know, conference, that big thing. I knew nothing, and I just assumed I was going to get a job. I, I I went in there with full, unbridled optimism and confidence. But right. I think that. It doesn't have to be as extremely naive as, as, as I was. But I think the confidence and the optimism can actually help. I think, you know, and there's studies, right? There's studies that optimistic people are more successful. Even unrealistically optimistic people are successful. And so that's why I have a special objection. We'll play more of Yoel's clip. But I have a special objection to these people who are trying to discourage young scholars from going in and just making them already depressed and pessimistic about their chances <laughs> uh, that so, I actually think that's going to end up hurting their chances. You should go in if you feel, you know, either way, you're going to, if you don't get it, you don't get it. But I don't see the problem of going in there, you know, with a little bit of not swagger, but yeah, I can do this kind right, of attitude. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I mean, I, I think that that you're right in that that. Uh, so you could be optimistic just because you're you're talented, and you could be optimistic for because you're naive. And being optimistic because you're naive actually might might be better for you. For one, it will make it will make graduate school more enjoyable. That is, if you're worried about your career options from like day one in graduate school, you're gonna have a miserable time. Like if you start looking at the numbers. 
it's a uh, you know it's just gonna it's gonna make you a miserable, horrible, depressive person, and, and it's gonna make you overthink your graduate like plan. Like, oh, I I should I should try to work on this because there's not a lot of people working on this right, instead of working that, what you actually care about. Exactly, and that, about. that's actually we'll talk about. Let's talk about that in in the next segment about uh, yeah. once you are in graduate school, how you decide sort of like how do you become a, a successful grad student. I want to add actually my just a little bit about my story because uh, I went to a small liberal arts college um that was religiously affiliated in in napa valley and my although my education i thought was great it was a no-name school and uh when when it came time to apply to graduate schools our advisors very rightfully said look you got to apply to at least 10 phd programs and two master's programs if you want any shot of getting in and uh so most of us were very very realistic about the the odds of getting in and um so i'll never forget the day I eventually ended up uh, getting accepted into Yale, but um, I'll never forget the day that I got the phone call from a professor at UC Riverside um, letting me know that they had accepted me because uh, that is probably the happiest day of my college career because that represented all of a sudden from not knowing whether I could get a PhD to knowing that I could. And yeah. nothing from that point on was as was as positive, uh, as good a feeling as just knowing that somehow I had made it into some PhD program, and I could I I would be I would be paid I would be funded to do what I wanted. I didn't even care what they made me do. I didn't care if I had to do grunt work and do you know this study something for five years that I didn't want. But at the end of five years, I knew that I would be able to study whatever the fuck I wanted to. Right. And that's the right attitude, right? Yeah. Like, I yeah. can't believe that they're going to pay me to do this awesome stuff. And yeah, yeah, you know, grunt, grunt work, whatever, but that's part of the deal. You got to pay your dues, you right. know? And that's true in every profession. And I, I don't know, it seems like and I, I got this sense, uh, excuse me, from the Slate article, there's a little bit of a sense of entitlement from some of these grad students. There is. And I don't want to sound like an old fogey complaining about senses of entitlement because uh, maybe maybe there were just as many entitled people when we were sort of applying to grad school. But I definitely get that sort of uh, – that somehow you deserve to be at a five-year fully funded program and get paid to do your – All right. Let's play more of Yoel's fucking bullshit little clip there. <laughs> <laughs> There's one number that I think is really uh, important, which is that 75% of teaching now um, in the U.S. is done by adjuncts. So universities are moving more and more to using non-tenure track faculty, especially for these uh, big uh, undergrad courses, uh, labor-intensive, I should say, undergrad courses like writing. Um, and they they think uh, rationally that why should we pay a tenured faculty member to teach this stuff when we can get adjuncts to teach it for very cheaply and not give them health care and uh, you know not have any sort of uh, commitment to them you know it's it's entirely semester to semester if they don't need you the next semester too bad see you right. that's a trend that I don't see changing um, and that's a very it's a very bad thing if you're going to go into that market because um, they. Most likely, just base rates say, if you're going to be working at a university, you're going to be doing so as an adjunct where you're basically making sub-minimum wage, you don't get benefits, and you get treated like dirt. Uh, okay, here's where I think you all is making a good point, which is... I agree. There, there's a way in which, you know, when you when you get out, you can get a job, but so many of those jobs are becoming sort of what, what we used to refer to as casual labor. You're, you're an adjunct professor, it's non-tenure track, and... And they pay a, you like shit. 
they pay you like shit. I mean, I had this experience where my post, I postdoc at UC Irvine, part of the University of California system, and my funding ran out a semester before um, I got my job at Cornell. So I had a semester where I wasn't being funded by a grant and I needed to make money. And so I taught a class for money and I was shocked at how little they paid to teach a class. So it, it t- I mean, you do live- this. I teach a class in the summer and I get paid adjunct pay if I do that. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it's it, I, I know it it's doesn't nothing. cover the taxes on something else. Like it's like crazy. So it, it, in, if you were to live in a in a city that had any high cost of living, like UC Irvine, there's no I don't know how people at UC Irvine could live as an adjunct professor. Um, you might as well work at Starbucks. But but it's a real problem. And we have a guy who's such an awesome teacher. He teaches you know four classes a semester his total salary comes out to like 20 21,000 a year he Holy has the shit. highest ratings on you know the whatever the all the teaching evaluations he has his shit down because he's not that's what he does you know he teaches right. and i feel like also that we're partly responsible you know the tenure track it's not totally cushy don't get me wrong we're not uh, what the you know Rick Perry and some of the right-wing politicians say we are, where we're just working part-time jobs. Right. And, but right. but the fact is, it's sometimes crush. I have to buy like the cheaper crackers for my caviar, yeah. and it really tastes like <laughs> shit. <laughs> but the fact is, I I think we might free ride a little bit on the labor of some of these adjuncts. We shouldn't yeah, no, feel we good about do. that. We what? definitely do. We definitely yeah, we do. Definitely do. Yeah. yeah. The, to even phrase that as we might do that and. So I think tenure tenure track professors have some responsibility to try to improve the conditions. It's hard though because as UOL says, it's so in the interests of the universities to hire these. They have no commitment to them. They can pay them like shit, and the fact is they'll do it. And that they might not be happy sur- about it, but they'll right. do it. I mean, but part of that problem is that there is a surplus of PhDs, and let's call this the 95% optimists, right? <laughs> There's a surplus of PhDs who who are dying for any to get any job in this domain, and they're, they, don't, they don't have a skill set that allows them to do much else. And so, you know, you kind of got to do what you got to do. And, to, and, and for many people, I believe they might go into it thinking that this is a stepping stone to a tenure-track job. And I don't know how it is in philosophy, but at least in psychology, I don't think it ever is a stepping stone. I think that once you're an adjunct, it's kind of hard to, to 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 make your way into a tenure track position. But, I mean, uh, you can do yeah. it. I mean, exceptional people have done it, but usually the track is more from like a like a high teaching load visiting or something right, like that. Right. But at least where you're full time and you're uh, yeah, once you get into that adjunct mode, it's very hard to pull yourself out of it at that point. Right. And, and inside. In psychology and probably in in other sciences, it's especially made difficult because when as soon as you take a job as an adjunct and you have to teach those high loads, then all of a sudden you have no time or resources for doing actual empirical research, and so you can't publish, and so that kind of shoots shoots you in the foot. Right? You don't have a lab. I mean, we don't right. need a lab. We don't need right. uh, we don't need anything except just time. Microsoft Word. Yeah, and, and Microsoft Word. So, yeah, I think Yoel's right about that, even though he's fucked up about so much else. All right, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about 
what to do if you ignore the negative Nancys, the haters like Yoel, and decide, like that wide-eyed girl from Kansas who wants to go to Hollywood and be an actress, that you want to go to grad school and be a professor. Well, you're in grad school. What should you do then? We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Rachel Graziaplane, and I'm a graduate student in psychology at the University of Minnesota. When my undergraduates asked me, you know, should I go to graduate school? You know, exactly why do you want to go? Is there anything else you can imagine yourself doing that's tangible and you think would make you as happy? Um, you might want to seriously consider that other option uh, before you jump feet first into graduate school. My answer to that question was I really didn't see myself doing anything else and being happy. I caught that research bug and I, you know, just felt like being in the lab and discovering new things and thinking about these misdeep mysteries of the mind and the brain. That was where I wanted to be. Take a year off before you go, at least a year. Um, this was really important for me. Uh, it helped me gain tremendous focus and clarity about exactly why I wanted to go to graduate school and uh, what I wanted to go to graduate school for. I think that that point of focus, like gaining focus in graduate school or before you go to graduate school, um, I think that's a really important thing. And I think it's actually something that has changed over the years. The most common answer I hear when I ask students why do they want to go to graduate school is they say something like, well, I just want, I want to learn everything. I just, you know, I love learning and I really am just curious about everything. And that's great, but you have to somehow differentiate yourself from this enormously large pool of other applicants. I actually had quite the disagreement about this with a certain advisor of mine. People don't realize how much your ego can end up feeling like a punching bag for kind of uncomfortably long periods of time. There's just nobody looking over your shoulder and providing that sort of constant reinforcement anymore. And you have to figure out how to set up your own uh, a motivation system and uh, be okay with not constantly getting positive reinforcement and patted on the back. Hey man, thanks for asking me to weigh in on the grad school experience. I'm doing my PhD right now at the University of Minnesota. I did my undergrad in political science at the University of Houston and the Honors College and my master's in rhetoric at Carnegie Mellon. The PhD is in communication studies, emphasis rhetoric. Grad school makes me feel like a fucking crazy person. I take my qualifying exams in two months. I'm writing on four questions, four hours a day, for four days, in a clean room with a clean computer and no notes. I'm stressed as shit about it. Right now, I'm at a wedding in Dallas. One of my best friends in the world is getting married. We got thrown out of high school together. He's responsible for me having to get a GED. I'm a groomsman. I have certain responsibilities. For instance, last night, it was my responsibility to take him out and get him hammered. Done. We went to breakfast at 8 this morning and talked about how we're all getting older and it's harder to do this and blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> what he doesn't know is that I woke up at 5 a.m. and read Foucault on the toilet. 
that's fucking sick. That's weird shit. Yeah, I guess if there's one thing I would tell someone, no one told me how isolating the PhD experience is. It's an incredibly individualistic process of personal achievement or failure. Most people move far away to do it because you go to the place where there are people that you are interested in studying with, wherever that is. My advice for anyone thinking about going to grad school or in grad school or anything like that um, is to get a dog. Not a shitty dog either, an awesome dog. My dog keeps me sane. Unconditional love, not to be underrated. You could also get a woman, I suppose, but I'm pretty sure a dog's easier. Thanks for asking me for my thoughts. I hope they're not too incoherent. I'm pretty hungover. Okay, we just heard two clips from uh, some graduate students that that, uh, Tamler and I both know uh, fairly well, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I know this guy. I never had him in a class. Uh, He's a funny guy. He's an interesting guy. He spent a lot of – he spent a – year or two as a you know playing poker out in las vegas he's uh he's an, he's one of these non-traditional students that right. we get at the university of houston and we treasure because he's 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 very funny and he's talented he's a little hungover and then <laughs> clear uh, or in that clip but yeah i think rachel is just drunk um, Rachel was actually an advisee of mine as an undergrad at Cornell, and she's now in Minnesota. But I think I like the the juxtaposition of these two because I think they're making a very similar point, but with a very different emotional tone to them. And but I think that point is that graduate school is a lonely, selfish in in one sense time where you're you're left to your own devices, right? So Rachel says you you need to find your own source of motivation. Nobody's there to look over your shoulder. No one's there to tell you what a good job you're doing. I mean, maybe some people have an advisor that tells you every time what a good job you're doing, but I think that's not good advising. It's a time of... of uh, it's a, this it's, is such a self-justification. I, I know. This is like they're just the ignoring them and not responding to their emails. That's what they need. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, you're responsible for yourself and and you're you're the only one you have you have very little agency a lot of it is in the hands of your advisor and in the whims of the job market and and whether or not your results work and and i think that's it's important to know i forget i sometimes forget that feeling because it worked out for me so i think that i said in in the twitter conversation that, that to me like when you asked me whether or not you should go to graduate school it sort of feels like the question of whether or not you should get circumcised i don't remember how miserable it must have felt as a little baby to get circumcised and because of that i'm like yeah cool it's totally cool but you know forced to put myself in that perspective i do remember those moments of like fuck am i doing am i am i publishing enough like i you know should i should i be doing more how come my advisor doesn't remember what year i am <laughs> which really happened to me. I, and let me say something that David Tucker said, get a dog. I, so, <laughs> I mean, I was lucky enough to have both a dog and a woman, or in fact, my wife, yeah, uh, I, so while bad. I was in grad school. And, and, and this just made, you know, that he said that made me think how much easier things were for me emotionally in terms of helping to put things in perspective. I mean, I even had my kid. I had my daughter when I was in my fourth year of graduate school. So talk about putting shit in perspective. Yeah, it makes you a little nervous uh, and, uh, oh, holy fuck, I got to provide for an actual family now right. but but you know it I, I it probably all those things the the unconditional love of the dog and i had the best dog who ever lived tess may she rest in peace being stable in other parts of your life 
will really help in graduate school. Yeah, that social support really. I mean, I I was the same. I was lucky enough to have um, a spouse and a dog. Um, and, and you're right. I, I talk to some graduate students now and there is this sort of lack of social support. And sometimes you get it from your graduate student cohort, but sometimes they're competitive. And sometimes you view them as the, the, the people who are getting in the way of you getting a job or the people who are publishing more than you. So I, I, I think that's really important. And that's why just as I didn't want the slate writer to generalize from her own experience, I shouldn't necessarily generalize from my really positive experience in grad school because I had a lot of the things in place that would help make that possible. Uh, it's surprisingly insightful. Dog. It's surprisingly insightful of you to not take an egotistical approach to this whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, look, this is an area where I've really appreciated some of the luck, some of the breaks that went my way. Yeah. Um, I mean, We'll talk about you in a second because you've had a much more charmed life. Let's talk a little bit. You want to talk about a little bit about like the ways of approaching grads? Grad yeah, let's do that. Let's yeah. do that. Let's talk about a little bit about the the how you how to be a good grad student. And I think that one of the things, and there is this temptation to follow the sexy topic, right? And yeah. uh, and that that the way that you will get a job is by studying what is what is sort of trending in the field as important or you know the flip side of that is something that you don't you don't think a lot of people are working on so you can fill that gap or something like that like i remember somebody telling me in grad school not a lot of people are working on vagueness Uh, (laughs) so i'm gonna i think i'm gonna work on vagueness Right. It's like, well, there might be a reason that uh, people (laughs) aren't working on vagueness because it's fucking boring. Yeah, and I think that the the general point is, at least for me, and we should say probably over and over again, like... Yeah, let's just say right now, blanket, you know, like my daughter does at the beginning, we're going to swear and say offensive jokes. (laughs) Yeah. We're going to say right now that this is just our experience. Yeah, there's no way it can can generate. But but nonetheless, and and you often feel that your experience is the right one. The minute I ever started thinking of my research in in a strategic way or in a careerist sort of way... That did two things. That just sucked the life out of me. Yeah. Right. And and I think that it would have led to poor research. I think yeah. that I would have just so Pete Ditto, who was a postdoc advisor of mine at UC Irvine, I think summarized it best for me when he said, "Look, they're never going to pay you enough to do something that you don't want to do." Exactly. Right? And and you can really tell the difference between when a grad student picks up a topic that they really, really love. If vagueness is something you really, really love, like absolutely you know, go for study it. the shit out of it. Right. Like, yeah. um, but, uh, I, when I was in graduate school, no one was doing moral judgment. Um, I mean, I say no one compared to now, but, uh, John Haidt published, John Haidt and Josh Green published their papers in 2001 and that was toward the end of my grad school career. But I, I remember deciding, I, should I, I wanted to study moral judgment. And I was lucky enough to have advisors who were like pretty okay with me doing whatever I wanted. And everybody at the time was studying like stereotyping and prejudice, right? And then like the brain, the neuroimaging stuff was just starting. But like I knew that if I wanted to get a job, I should study something like implicit attitudes or stereotyping and prejudice because that's where the jobs were. And I was like, I cannot for the life. I mean, part of it is just my laziness. Like, I cannot work on something that I don't like. I just can't do it. No, it's me like, neither. Yeah. yeah. And and I thought I thought that it was the nail in my coffin. 
and I got lucky. I, you know, I got, I ended up getting lucky that the topic actually did become. Yeah, that as you, that the thing you wanted to pursue became like a a huge topic. I mean, I did the same thing. I wanted to work on free will. I mean, I, I, I entered in there wanting to do philosophy of biology, evolutionary biology, evolution and philosophy. Uh, But quickly, I really saw that I was interested in those topics as they related to free will and moral responsibility, and that's what I wanted to do. Now, again, I didn't know enough about the field to know that this is a slightly problematic field to go into because nobody hires in those topics, and they're in between the topics that people do hire in, which is ethics and metaphysics or and philosophy of mind. But they're not fully in there. So it is something that is... Is tough. I mean, a lot of people who work on this stuff complains. You'll never see a job ad for somebody working on free will and moral responsibility. Now, this is the number one thing I believe about uh, of being in grad school, and it's exactly what your your friends say. First of all, uh, or, or or your advisor said, they don't pay you enough to work on something that you're not really interested in. Also, you're not going to do a good job. I think no, I mean not. there might be somebody that's just a real just professional and they can just churn out these things on things they don't give a shit about and and there must be because it does seem like a lot of philosophy is you know is characterized <laughs> right. by people doing that but I I, I you I, can tell though you could just tell you can, you can tell. tell you right. can the tell. minute someone gives a talk on the topic yeah I don't exactly. know. There is something about really being into what you study that makes you read sort of outside your area. It makes you just sort of think about that kind of shit when you're taking a shower in your spare time. And you really – there's a sparkle in your eye and a depth to your understanding of a topic that you really care about that that it's just like you might that as well That just comes be. across and people – People respond to that. You have to find the thing. And here, if you don't have this thing in your field, then I'm with Yoel and his negative Nancy. Uh, <laughs> right. You have to have something that just you want to work on that fascinates you and you want to pursue and just not care about whether that's going to be good for your job prospects, bad for your job prospects. What's going to be end up – Good for your job prospects is that you are passionate and also not just passionate because you can be passionate about something and not good at it. And like you, you and you, like you and sex, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna let that go because I'm saying something very serious. Right now. <laughs> if 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 there is something that you really love, then you go in there and you pursue that and you can make it work for you. And, you know, free will did also, like like moral judgment, take off a little right. bit uh, in the time that I was a grad student. But still, that wasn't the that wasn't the point. I think what ended up making me a more attractive candidate that I might otherwise have been is that I cared. I cared about my topic deeply. And that came across in my writing. And, you know, we, we were hiring a, a position, a big position, you know, and in this tough market, you get a lot of the best people. And it's not just me who was looking for that. Almost everybody in the faculty were looking for somebody, A, who was doing interesting work, and B, that really cared about their work. They were passionate about it in addition right. to being good at it. 
And I, yeah, most schools that are worth their metal, I, I mean, most departments will always want to hire somebody who is doing work on something that they're passionate about and doing good work on. All right. So let's talk in the next segment about getting a job. So David asked me to speak to you guys about career advice. My response is divided into three parts. One, should we go to graduate school? Two, what advice would I give to people who ignore my advice and go to graduate school anyway? And three, is it ever a good idea to try sleeping your way to the top? I will go over these three questions in turn. Question one, should you go to graduate school? No. I don't know you, but no. Unless you have no skills that would make you employable in any other profession, don't even bother with a PhD. The simple reason is there are no jobs. If you are fortunate enough to be offered a job, it will likely be at a school you've never heard of, in the middle of nowhere, with a heavy teaching load. You'll be paid a pittance, especially considering how much training you just went through. Going to grad school is like playing the lottery. Sure, you could get lucky and draw a winning ticket, like Tamler and David, neither of whom deserve their jobs, but more than likely, you won't stay in academia. There's not much that distinguishes people that make it from those that don't. But Nina, you say, I don't care about any of that. The life of the mind is the life for me, and or I am a masochist. What do you advise? If you're already committed to graduate school, I do have some tips. There is this mythology built around the mentor relationship that your advisor will groom you and take care of you and build you from the bottom up. Usually that's not the way it works. Advisors have their own lives. They're not always attentive or competent or nice. And I say this with some authority as David is my advisor. You have to be prepared to be independent and forge your own path. Besides, you're not always going to be under someone's wing, waiting for them to tell you what to do. Academia is like being in business for yourself. You are the innovator. You are the agent. You are the builder of your own brand. In graduate school, you'll hopefully get some help and training with this, but ultimately no one can do that besides you. Next piece of advice. Take calculated risks. You're competing for a tiny pool of jobs with people who are smart and accomplished, most of whom are smarter and more accomplished than you. You have to distinguish yourself somehow, and your best bet is doing original and interesting work. Unless you're an exceptionally uncreative person, do you really want to be relying on sheer number of publications to distinguish yourself from the pack? It's better to carve out a new path than to spend your time picking up the crumbs of other people's ideas. Given how difficult all of this is, it can be tempting to look for shortcuts. Perhaps you've considered marrying someone who already has tenure, or currying sexual favors with the senior faculty. So, you may ask, does it work? Should I try sleeping my way to the top? Maybe. It worked for Tamler and David. 
that's Nina. How do you pronounce her last name? Strominger. Uh, no, I don't know. Is she it's German? Stro- Stro- Strominger. <laughs> if she's German, she she's on one of the few Germans that I really, she's not, really. I mean, she's German. <laughs> no, she's uh, awesome. I. She wrote. Uh, we got a link to this. If it's linkable, one of the great reviews of all time. Yeah, a review of Colin McGinn's book on disgust, which is. Which I'll never read because of Nina's review. I can't imagine that it. Why well, was it? Were you in danger of reading it before? Well, you, you know, I studied disgust, so it's pr- quite possible that I would have picked that up and actually tried to read it. And I'm just glad I didn't. Uh, yeah. um, so, so, so Nina get, d- dropped us with this gem of a of a three minute clip. Nina is a postdoc right now at Duke, and I am her co advisor with Walter Sinnott Armstrong and Dan Ariely. We've all combined forces like Voltron to try to reel her in. So let's talk about – so now we're in the point of grad school, and here's where I'm going to be a little less upbeat. I I feel like I've been the cheerleader, the coach giving the halftime talk uh, about how they're going to win. A couple things that I would suggest. First of all, your dissertation. Best piece of advice I ever got from my dissertation advisor who did not work on my field. But what he said is don't worry about reading all the literature and have and feeling like you have to cite everything. He said just write the fucking thing because that's the important thing that you get your dissertation done. No one will read your dissertation. Yeah. And when he said no one will read the dissertation, I assumed he meant people other than the people that are on your committee. <laughs> but even the people on your committee will read it with, you know, more or less care. I'll never forget when I was uh, – the there was a brown bag meeting right before my dissertation defense. And one of the members of my committee, Frank Kyle, was the, the breadth member of my committee. Uh, I saw him with my dissertation in hand, flipping through the pages furiously during during someone else's talk. And I was just I, – I thought to myself – Oh my God! You mean he hasn't had this thing read like in, in copious notes already? And, and now that and, I'm and on also committees, just like memorized. <laughs> yeah, but now that I'm on committees, I'm like, oh my God! I am reading those things like to the very point. He's reading me. one right now, for, <laughs> exactly for, for a defense that he has in an hour. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think that's really good advice. Not that you should be completely irresponsible about it, but so many people I know get paralyzed by, oh my God, I'm not addressing this objection to that Frankfurt case variation or some shit like that. And that's just the kind of thing that you just don't have to worry about. You may or may not have to worry about that later, but you definitely don't have to worry about that for your dissertation. What you have to worry about it is making it good and completing it. Yeah, uh, I think that's the key that that uh, you, you're right. Absolutely right. I think I think across disciplines, people get paralyzed, and I think one reason they get paralyzed is they think my dissertation is sort of my coming out to the world as a scholar, and that's going to be that's going to define my career for the rest of my life. When the reality is, it's just another fucking paper. It's like longer if it's a dissertation, but it probably shouldn't be that much longer um, because I mean, depending on I mean, your it, department. It can, uh, yeah. Again, I think this is might be different from psychology and philosophy. Like I, I do yeah. think the length of it is important because it puts it in your mind what you have to do to write a long piece of work and it makes you 
tackle wide area that you might not otherwise do. Yeah, my dissertation was thirty seven pages long. Jesus, um, <laughs> but I think it's one of the shortest on on record. Yeah, uh, but just slacker. <laughs> But, uh, Have the, you just gotten where you are solely via your connection with Dan Ariely? I didn't know him at that point, but uh, but there is a common denominator, which is I give very good hand jobs. <laughs> so, the, but but I think that the paralysis is striking. I, I'll never forget the advice I got from from uh, actually a professor. Paul Bloom just tweeted that you're lying about that. <laughs> It was not good at all. With him, it was like I, I was starting a lawnmower. Um, <laughs> Wait, hold on. Let me figure that out. Uh, well, a, a professor in my my oh, I like that <laughs> my first year uh, who taught methods, Alan Kasdan, who taught our methods course, said your dissertation is there's this temptation to feel like it's going to define who you are for the rest of your life. And he would tell us all the time. He would remind us what the topic of his dissertation was on, and it had nothing to do with what he was like famous for. I mean, it was nothing, nothing. It was it, you couldn't even believe that he would have written that dissertation. Not and only think, that, but like you don't know enough to write. Like my dissertation, like I look back and I was like, what the. F- I- are you out of your mind? It's embarrassing, but it was it was fun to write. It was really important for me. And I actually, you know, a couple of papers came out of it in more mature forms, but I, I didn't know. I, I knew shit about philosophy when I wrote that dissertation. Uh, it's, it's amazing, yeah. I, and I think that, that, um, that to the extent that you feel that it's going to be so super important part of your career, then you're just going to get more and more paralyzed. I mean, that's right. It, so, uh, you know, my advisor, Peter Salovey, I think he was a little scared. I had done a proposal for a dissertation, and it was sort of grand. I, I, it was very ambitious. I had proposed a whole set of studies, and uh, I just wasn't getting around to it. But I collected data on another unrelated study, and in a meeting, he told me, why don't you just make this your dissertation? You already have one study done. And in retrospect, I know it's because he was afraid I was going to be lazy and never do the big thing, but he was absolutely fucking right, spot on. Yeah. I wasn't going to. I needed that motivation of seeing something that worked. And not having had the pressure of of like really 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 wanting that study to work, yeah, and that totally got me writing. And I, I mean, it was some of my fondest memories were just sitting in the coffee shop writing my dissertation, all thirty seven pages of it. <laughs> yeah, no, mine too. <laughs> and you know, another great thing about having a dog, I dedicated well uh, a couple of my books in part to my dog because i would spend just i, <laughs> I would take her for long hikes in duke forest and you know and i would plan out shit for my dissertation with her and my book too and actually i think all my books mention her as a big part you know the the dissertation and the two books i like know. how you haven't mentioned your daughter at all like <laughs> well my daughter was like my she was like one years old like what, what's she gonna do a she dog understands philosophy <laughs> she, she, she might have taken a shit on like one of the pages at one point <laughs> I love my daughter. Don't get me wrong. She's awesome. But she didn't help me write my dissertation. But your Uh, dog did. Let me say one last thing before we get to the big, long cunt punting that is the the job market. I mean, that's how it feels anyway. It feels – I think Nina is actually right about how you have to take responsibility for your – how did she put it? Your brand. You build your own brand, you your right? Brand. Yeah, I mean, so, and I, but I, but I think that there's there's a lot to that, right? I mean, 
uh, and I think this is something that grad students don't know. I know I try to instill this into my master's students right away, which is there's a little bit of a hu- this is a bit of a hustle, right? You got to hustle in this, and uh, and part of that is just kind of putting yourself out there. Right. And not expecting your advisor to do that for you. Yeah. And that touches on something that Rachel said as well in her in her full in her full clip, which is that um, it's easy to think that that you're going to go into this and be sort of monitored by your advisor the whole time. And the truth of the matter is, man, you're going to get out there and you only you at the end of the day are in charge of your career. And it's going to be frustrating when when you turn to others for guidance. Um, I mean, not guidance, but but when you if you have any shred of doubt in your mind that at the end of the day it's all you, <laughs> it, you'll be disabused of that um, because it's true. You got it. You got to get out there. And again, I'll say it again that it's it, this floats into talking about your career strategically, but but it's a point that has to be made. You're gonna. I hate, Nina, you sound douchey when you say brand, but I love you anyway. Um, but you really do have to. Have what do you to, think about blogs? I oh, suck at blogging. I think I think that they're great. I think it's it's a great idea if you're any good at it. Um, I, <laughs> I I'm not of the opinion that everybody should blog because I've read some really really bad ones. Um, right. How how are you going to know? But I but I think you know I know some students are worried that it's you know they won't be taken seriously or something like that if they blog. I mean I know that for me and again we're always talking about personal experience. But um, when the Garden of Forking Paths, which was a great free will blog, started out, which is now it's now Flickers of Freedom, that was my way. You know when I was a gra- when I was a really young grad student, I wasn't traveling to many conferences. I had no budget for that and uh, that was my way of just getting to know all the people in my field who would end up being so important for me so and it was a great opportunity to bounce off ideas and get people to you know point me in one direction or another direction it was very constructive the whole the whole thing was a very constructive environment um and if you can find something like that or you can start your own blog like a few really gifted i think uh grad student philosophers have done i think it's a great way to people to know who you are yeah i I agree i want to there is a little bit of a distinction between philosophy and psychology here which is in philosophy so for both things, I think that one of the great reasons to blog is that it gets you writing. And a lot of times I see graduate students struggle with getting started writing. That's so, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Great it's point. Like, yeah. And in psychology, especially, the temptation is that to be a good grad student, you have to collect data. So you collect data, collect data, collect data. Maybe you analyze it. And I saw so many... Then you start massaging it. <laughs> then you just start making it up. You... It- <laughs> <laughs> and then philosophers start talking about it as if it were true. Um, right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so it's good to get you know. <laughs> Those really are the four steps. <laughs> That's when you know you've made it. Yeah. It's it's like the stages of grief, but for, for fraud. Um, I don't know how to describe it as, except for like a sort of constipation that I see grad students have that they can't write. So maybe it's good to just get the juices flowing, get writing. But I think in philosophy, it is more central to your career to be able to write about ideas in that way. That is, when you post a blog in philosophy, it can turn into a paper. Like you can put the gen- absolutely the, the the germ of an idea can turn into full blown paper. Like, I, oh, at least paper. three or four of my papers, as well as a lot of my book, is just oh. comes from me going back and looking at these and blog posts that blog. I did. <laughs> and what you know, and 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 people's comments. I mean, I have a co- I have I have footnotes 
that reference comments in the blog uh, in, in my book because they were so important to developing that I- whatever idea it was that I was that's developing. The, the, the- is that the youporn.com uh, footnote <laughs> where you reference user comments? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm always looking at the user comments. So. <laughs> um, so in psychology, it's a little different in that you, if you're going to blog, you often are blogging about other people's work, um, like a, a study that just came out, for instance. And I think that that's it's also very valuable. Uh, so if you have to make it – if you're going to go either way, I think blogging – blogging is is a good thing to do if you're on the fence about it but it's also the case that it's not necessarily going to be directly relevant to what you ought to be writing up um, right so so you might i could especially, see somebody wasting their time instead of writing up their own data writing blog posts but. especially you know i i do think it's different for psychology because also you guys have to like jazz it up when you do a blog it doesn't seem like there's many psychology blogs that are as detailed, you know, devoted to being as detailed as a paper would be, where there, there are philosophy blogs that are like that. Yeah, um, yeah know, the, the thing is, you know, say you have some raw data as a psychology student, you can't just get up there and be like, our preliminary findings indicate, you know, on the blog, in the way that you can toss around an idea that's yours in philosophy. Right. Yeah, so I mean, and, and the hustle thing, you know, I always tell my students, write to we're fortunate enough to be in a profession where nobody's that famous that if a student that they don't know writes to them, there's not a good chance that they're going to write back and thank them for their interest. And, uh, and I just think that's another really good, good way to do it. If you're on the fence, I would say err on the side of being a pain in the ass to these people. They'll let you know. Yeah. I mean, be respectful, but definitely write them. I mean, they're, they're going to just be stoked that somebody read their paper. I don't care how famous, like pseudo-famous, uh, the person is. When when they get an email saying, like, I really enjoyed your paper. I had, you know, John Haidt did this to me. Uh, John Haidt, right when he – I'll never forget this. Uh, he – right when he had published his Emotional Dog and the, and the Rational Tale, I read a draft of it that, that was on the internet. It was before it had been published. And I – I had just written like my first crappy paper that eventually got published as my first publication. I mean, it wasn't crappy. It's awesome. But, um, I emailed him out of the blue and I said, I just read your paper and I, and, uh, you know, I, I actually disagreed with it a lot, but I think I said that I, there were some points of disagreement. I sent him my paper. He scheduled a phone call with me and yeah. just out of nowhere, he didn't know who I was. And, chatted with me for about an hour. I don't think he even remembers this because I've, I've thanked him multiple times since then. Um, but the fact that he was willing to do that, to talk to a young, a young scholar about just because, just because he, I think he read the enthusiasm in my email. Um, you never know that might happen. That's certainly not guaranteed to happen. And I probably wouldn't call someone. <laughs> I, I might, I might. Uh, you might, but you're not. I mean, he's a much better person than you are. He is a much better. Fortunately, person than there's are. fortunately a lot of people in academia are significant they are, they better are. people. And the, here's another, just a very very small point, which is if you don't get a response back, don't take it personally because absolutely there are yes. ten million reasons why somebody doesn't get back to you. Only one of which is that they're an asshole, and they, right. they, they, they or that they like just it. they don't like you or they think yeah. less of you or they don't right. think you're important enough to respond. I think emails, this really happened to me in the last couple of years or one or two years now where just, I, I don't, I, I, I'm not processing probably five to 10% of my emails, just ne- no matter how important, no matter what they are, oh, they yeah. just never Absolutely. enter my consciousness. 
Absolutely. Uh, at and I least, feel so but, bad when every once in a while when I have insomnia and I go back and look at my inbox, I'm like, fuck. Oh, my no, God. Exactly. Then you go like, oh. And then you write that really apologetic email, which sounds like bullshit, but is actually totally. true, except totally. that 1% of the time where it's false. But Yeah, I should have uh, a little cut and paste snippet of that really tail between <laughs> legs email. Yeah, exactly. All right. So that's, I mean. Do we have anything more to say about the hustle? The you know, I I do think it's like you have to think of yourself as like dealing crack on the street or something like <laughs> yeah. that. You know, like you just have the to be, send your send your demo everywhere. Yeah, sell a lot of crack. Jay Z has a great song called "Rap Game Crack Game." Um, yeah, he, and so you know, grad school is kind of like that. Although maybe I think I suspect you have a different tolerance for this because you're always trying to hustle, um, but. Is there a point where you get turned off when a, when a grad student seems a little yeah, too... Yeah, that's the thing. You have to be sensitive, right? Yeah. I'd say err on the side of being a pain in the ass, right. but don't be a pain in the ass. Don't always think, oh, this will bother them. This will, you know, they're, they're so busy. I, they'll never want to respond to me. I mean, it might be true, but if it is, they won't hold it against you. They'll just forget that it ever happened. I think and if it's, it's, yeah, if it's genuine enthusiasm for your work or for the, for the field, I think that comes across, right? I, you know? You, you there's a way in which you can sound like a PR person and we're not in PR um, but 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 you don't want to be pushy and you don't want to send them like long papers that you've done cuz there's no chance that they'll read them unless they're some <laughs> exactly. sort of saint um, you want to ask them ideally questions about their work or you know, a, a way that you might be thinking of developing it. Um, right. If you have so. one specific question, I, I tend to sit on long emails that have multiple questions on them because I always think to myself, okay, when I have enough time to devote to this response, I'll devote it to it. All right, let's talk about the actual getting a job process because here's where things become not so rosy. This At is least the bottleneck. You know, this is the bo- it's the bottleneck. I don't give right? good hand jobs like Dave. <laughs> no, in fact, I don't really, give hand jobs. So, how long did it? Uh, your dog would beg to differ. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sorry to people. <laughs> so, I, I applied for jobs coming out of grad school. Then I took a postdoc, and then I applied the second and third years of my postdoc. So, it took me four years to get a job coming out of graduate school, a tenure track job. And so, I was constrained by geography because I was married like Tamler and I had a daughter when I was um, a postdoc. And if there's anything that became super, super duper salient is that if you want to get a job, you're going to have to apply everywhere across across the country. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So here's where my ridiculous, naive optimism and overconfidence, I think, probably went too far. So I I was going to apply after my fourth year. And my advisors, for whatever reason, you know, they were so good to me. They get they 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 built me up. I I always appreciate. It. They just let me do stuff that I think a lot of people wouldn't let me me get away with and they told me I was good. I applied even when I was in my 4th year. I thought I was going to clean up. I thought I was a fucking superstar. And <laughs> uh and then all I got was one interview at the University of Denver and I didn't get it. It was like I I don't think I was even close. And unfortunately, because I'm such an arrogant piece of shit, I thought that was just a blip. And when I uh, when your, I your went degree of self insight today really is surprising me. It's like, a- yeah, no, I know. Well, this is a humbling. The job market is the prototypical humbling experience. I can't think of anything more humbling, you know, that doesn't involve 
waking up in your own vomit in Tijuana or something like that. <laughs> I my fifth year, which is when a lot of people go out, you know, in philosophy. And, you know, it's usually the earliest time that people go out. Again, I thought, all right, now I've gotten a few things. Like I've given papers at a couple of conferences. I had a publication on the horizon. And I thought, now this this is going to be the shit for me. And I only got two interviews at the APA, which is our American Philosophical Association. Now, you don't have this, right? Philosophy. No, in, in, in psychology, we don't have one of those singular conferences where people interview. There are a few conferences where it's there's this informal meet and greet um, in social psychology. But, uh, but yeah, a lot of other fields have one conference dedicated to the job market, and, and we just don't. So here's how it works in philosophy, and it's awful. And it's changing a little bit because there was no Skype. So this was the only chance to do like that first screening interview of your first 12 people is to have it in this big conference which takes place for whatever fucking reason between christmas and new year's oh yeah and so all i got were two interviews one from the university of memphis and one from the university of minnesota morris and i was again sort of shocked but you know i I, I always thought something's going to come up. Maybe I'll just get a job when I'm there or something like that. I remember I, I, I took a little trip with my wife to Arizona right right before the conference. And and then I got an interview from Columbia while we were there. And I was like, oh, see, I knew see, it. I'm yeah, the, shit. the shit. I'm you're the, the shit. fucking shit. <laughs> and... I so we go to uh, I go to the APA now. I had thought the APA was uh, going to be easy. Everyone complains about. It. Everyone says it's one of the most humiliating and horrifying and horrible experiences. But again, I thought that's just because people are 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 wimps. Are, are, are not you? Are not me exactly? And I'm going to handle it just like the best way because I'm going to be easygoing about it and, and I'm going to be and I'm going to put things in perspective and I'm going to be confident and then I get there and <laughs> so if I had my Columbia interview it, it, it was one of the probably one of the funniest things from their perspective <laughs> like they were like how the fuck did we interview this guy I, I didn't even understand the questions they were asking me I remember there were people asking me questions I, I had no idea what they were talking about and then they would respond with I thought you were going to say this, and then they would say something else that I didn't understand and ask me to <laughs> respond to that. And that just went on for like 45 minutes, and I walked out of there. Even I, at that point, knew, okay, I don't think that went well. <laughs> they were speaking different language than I was. Uh, then I got to Memphis. I thought it ran really well. but And then the University of Minnesota Morris was just, it's just two people. It's just a very small school. And, you know, and, then, and then there's the smoker, and the smoker is... Really, this horrible experience. It's called a smoker because it used to be that people smoked at it. And it's it's a nighttime thing where after your interviews, you every, every one of these peop, uh, universities has a table. And it's, it's this is... The, I, it's it's very, like a job fair in high school. It, it, a, a little bit, except your whole life depends on going to these tables and talking to the people and you know trying to rectify something that you said or trying to just solidify your position after the interview so you can get a fly out interview and and it's this horrible you know because the other people who interviewed are also there and you kind of have to hover around 
you feel mm-hmm. like a, like you're at a prom or something, but the girls don't like you, and you're trying to like, and, and then you have to kind of like worm your way in, and then uh. you have to talk to these people, and these people have the power over you. When I was applying later, when I already had a job, but I but I wanted to get out of it, and I was applying later. I remember I talked to a guy uh, from the University of British Columbia. And he just corn, you know, and I and I had to. You, you have to. This is it. I wanted that job. I wanted it desperately. And this was a guy I thought I needed to win over because I hadn't won him over in the interview. And he starts talking to me about Kant. So already it's fucked. <laughs> and you know, long like about his work and Kant and autonomy and it just went on for 20 minutes and i and i could and i didn't know what he was saying i didn't care i hated it he was being kind of a dick to me and in any other circumstance you know i would never put up with this shit i would never in a fucking million years put up with the way i was being treated by this guy who was just sort of monopolizing me and just using me as just a sounding board and i knew he didn't like me i knew i was done with them but i still had to sit there and take it for the just a small hope that you know something might happen and i remember it was one of the just like it just stripped away every bit of dignity that i had that whole thing <laughs> i felt like elizabeth shoe and leaving las vegas you know like when she's crying were in you, the shower were you, were you getting liquor poured down your titties like <laughs> and no that, that that was like those were the good times right i'm talking about when those like she goes to the fraternity party kind right. of thing yeah, and yeah. yeah and it just it was just so like and obviously i don't mean to demean that's Negative how I, I i i i yeah i it, it was just awful and that's i you know this is people who've been to the smoker and just it's the most powerless feeling you can possibly have and and think about it the people who have power over you are philosophers right these yeah. that kind of like social misfits and they own you and they and some of them like it some of them want to like lord it over you and you have yeah. to sit there and take it and everything about the way i was brought up and the way i like to be is you stand up for yourself you don't like people piss on you you don't let me but i didn't do that then because you can't because it's like it's the difference between you getting a job that will mean everything to you or not and so you have to sit there and take it and and just the whole experience of waiting to see if you get an interview waiting to see you know it's just it's brutal. There's nothing fun. There's nothing good I can say about it. When I was on the other side and going to the market, I was I, I, I do my best to try to be nice to everybody there. But there's nothing you can do because these people are all feeling the same thing that I had to feel then. And so that stuff is fucking horrible. Listening it's- to some guy who would normally you would – punch in the face if they talk to you for more than five minutes you have to sit there and listen to them for half an hour sort of being like condescending and smarmy to you and and being a dick i don't know i don't even know if i'm describing it properly but the powerlessness feeling of it the these other people have so much power over you and (laughs) all right dude let's wrap it up (laughs) so what i what i want to know at this point tablers but how do you really feel (laughs) <laughs> Let me say one last thing because I didn't get a job, a plum job at Ivy League institution like you did right out of 
It wasn't right out of it. I I have a story to tell also, except for that I don't have now 20 minutes to tell mine. (laughs) Maybe we should, like... uh... (laughs) The short version is that I got hives all over about 90% of my body on the job market. And I had to go to the ER where they injected me with with an steroid to make my hives go away because it was such an anxiety-provoking time in life. I mean, your your entire life is completely outside of your control. And so that sense, that feeling that you describe of dread and horror and powerlessness and 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 just waiting like a fucking like standing in the line at a communist fucking bread like bakery like hoping that you get a piece of bread, right? It's yeah. just it's just completely and every powerful. phone call could yeah. is 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 possible it could be yeah and then you interview and then you're waiting if to hear and you don't and then you have to hear or like or you hear through the grapevine that they might make the offer to someone else or they did make the offer to someone else but they haven't bothered to tell you yet because they're still waiting to hear if they said yes or no but it's a fucking small world so you got you're gonna find out anyway or or like applying to jobs and then going online and seeing that there are already three talks talks scheduled on their department colloquia and that means right. you didn't get the interview but like two months later you get like a mail in the like a letter in the mail saying like thank you for your for considering us and it's just it's it's miserable it's miserable oh and one more thing i i, I want to say this you know when you get your first job if you're like me and you don't you don't just get a job at cornell because somebody owed paul bloom a favor or something like that my first job was university of minnesota morris is in about three hours west of st paul in minneapolis two our biggest city was two hours north that was fargo i feel like that's uh, where they filmed game of thrones could that be right it, I, I don't like, never watch Game of Thrones. So I wouldn't know. But, you know, when I first interviewed there, I got there. I left a message on Jen's phone that just said, no fucking way. And then I got interviewed. Of course, it's my only offer. All I'm going to say about it is I, I really enjoyed my three years there. They were very important for me. I was mad at my department for making me take that job, essentially saying, you have a tenure track job with a good teaching load. You're, there's no way we're funding you for another year in grad school. I was, and I, uh, I was mad at them at first, but now I see that they might have been looking out for they me. And they were right. They were, right. They, they were totally right. I was being like such a little spoiled spoiled yeah. brat but but i'm telling you it was great i really enjoyed the people there there are parts of that job that i miss to this day even though you know i'm very happy in my current position at, at, at u of h so so that's the last is thing that, and then let's talk you're applying to to jobs widely right now is that- <laughs> <laughs> i've not applied to a job since i got to the university of houston uh, uh, know, i i do uh want to say one thing which is the advice that i've gotten over and over again because you know, you're often going to be in, in face with a decision like that. And I think that the right question is, is this a place where you can get your work done? Right. I mean, if, if you're, if it's important to you to be in the field, the right question is, and, and this might matter a bit more in psychology where you need more resources, financial resources and, and um, lab space and that kind of thing. The right, the right question is not how big is the school, how famous is the school or whatever. The right question is, can you get your research done at this school? Can you right. publish papers from here? And if yes, then if that's your only option, you should take it. 
And you shouldn't bitch about it because you have no idea. I had no idea how much, you know, as soon as I get there, there's a guy who's hired at the same time as me. We became really good friends. He, he was hilarious. We had the exact same kind of cynical attitude. He's from New Jersey. You know, and it, and it was a nice young faculty. It was a great place to uh, raise Eliza for the first four years of her life. And, and there, I would have predicted none of that going into right. it. And then if you really want to move out of there, you, as Dave said, if, if this place gives you a, a, a chance to work and a chance to, and it just gives you a little extra credibility also, that little extra credibility that can push you through a door that you wouldn't otherwise get through. I feel like now we're talking like fucking businessmen. You know? Don't <laughs> you right. feel like like consultants right, or something? Well, just, like how big is your parachute? Just, maybe we should just talk about about. Let's wrap just up to sleep your way to the top. Yeah. As much Which, as Nina likes to say that that's what Tamler and I did, sleeping is just really not the right word. <laughs> it's more. Right. Where you weren't able to sleep actually for like three nights. It was hard to sit. What, it was hard. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, you do what you got to do. I have mouths to feed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have a family. You uh, take one for the team. <laughs> you take one for the team. Okay, we really got to wrap up. Any final words of wisdom? You won't regret it if you go to grad school, and you won't regret it if you don't go to grad school. So, <laughs> both those things are very possibly false, <laughs> right? I mean, you might. Wait, regret hold on. I didn't finish out. Fill- I didn't finish filling out the two by two cell. You, <laughs> you will regret it if you go to grad school, and you will regret it if you don't go to grad school. No, right. I, I think that that uh, uh, somebody said it right. I, I think I read this online, which is, um, if you're asking yourself the question too seriously, the right answer is probably no. I, I think that it was. I think that the 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 honest truth of it is that it wasn't even an option for me. <laughs> I will say that though, though, if you're a normal person, you might have some very reasonable doubts about going. Yeah, absolutely. Even though you still really, really want to go. So I would say I, I would phrase it more. If this is something you really want and you think after an honest look at yourself that you're capable of doing it, then I would say absolutely do it. It's going to be a risk, but... You can always change. You can always stop. You can always shift careers. This is like we're lucky to live in a world like that. Right. So that's it. That's all we got. Sorry. (laughs) We could have solved more of your problems. If you... Maybe if you apply to our programs and you tell us, I've, I listen to Very Bad Wizards. Like, and I, <laughs> I shop at Amazon after click, doing our click-through. And then, you guys are much uh, better than those other podcasts, right? Yeah, and I've rated you on iTunes <laughs> and I've liked you on Facebook. Then it's a guaranteed admission into our program. Then, yeah, or if we have a job opening, you get the job uh, okay. down the line. Thanks. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizard. For more information about this episode, including show notes and links, and to listen to other episodes, please visit us at www.verybadwizards.com. Very good man. Just a very bad wizard.